0: Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm, Hello, fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.
1: Hello, and welcome to Nothing Concrete, the Barbican podcast. I'm Angie Smith, theatre and dance producer at The Barbican, and I'm here to introduce our new series, Inspired, where we ask an artist to invite someone who's influenced their creative lives to share the stories behind their connection. In our first episode, Michael Mikey Asante, co-founder of Boy Blue, the Olivier award-winning hip-hop dance company and Barbican artistic associate, talks to the Oscar-winning director Danny Boyle. Since the hugely successful transfer of Pied Piper from Theatre Royal Stratford East to the Barbican in 2009, Mikey, working with his co-artistic director Kenrick H2O Sandy, has created works including The Five and The Prophecy of Prana, Red, and the internationally acclaimed Black White Grey. East London-born Mikey's 20-year career is firmly etched in the UK black music industry. His work with MOBO award winner Kano put him on the map in 2005 and he's worked with numerous recording artists and created music for film, theatre and TV, most recently collaborating with Brian Eno on Netflix Top Boy. Outside the studio, Mikey mentors and delivers choreography composition masterclasses and he's also a professor of electronic music at the Guildhall School of Music and Drama. Director and screenwriter Danny Boyle began his career at the Royal Court Theatre upstairs, but is best known for his work on films, including Train Spotting, ranked in the top 10 greatest British films of the 20th century and Slumdog Millionaire, which won him eight Academy Awards. Danny directed a film of Boy Blue's Emancipation of Expressionism on the Barbican stage, a groundbreaking moment where for the first time in UK mainstream education, Hip Hop was a set work on the GCSE Dance Syllabus. In 2011, Danny returned to his theatre roots with an adaptation of Frankenstein at the National Theatre, starring Johnny Lee Miller and Benedict Cumberbatch. And then, in 2012, he was taken firmly to the heart of the British people as the artistic director behind the incredible opening ceremony of the London 2012 Olympics. This is also how Danny came to meet Mikey.
2: This is great. I think I've managed to back you into a corner because generally when we're having the conversations that we're having, it's usually related to some kind of work or some plan or something that we have to do. How we met, I know people are going to be wondering that. Me and you have known each other quite a while now and done some... I mean,
3: what is your side of it? I've never heard your side of our meeting so so we were setting up this enormous project which was the opening ceremony at the, at the 2012 olympic games we'd spent about a year devising ideas for it you know what because it's such a, it's on such a scale there's so many resources involved and we'd come up with these sections and the sections were an industrial revolution section and it was that was with the choreographer um toby sedgwick who i'd worked with before and we were looking so, we it was so I, I, I kind of knew what we were doing there in a way, and we were working with music on Underworld on it because I'd asked Underworld, who I'd worked with on the Frankenstein at the National Theatre, so they were, gonna, they were gonna work on that. And then we had this NHS section that was fundamental to it, and I didn't have a choreographer for that. And we had other choreographers involved, like Akram Khan was involved, but we wanted him to do his own piece. And, but we had this third section which was about music and it was about how important British music is. I was looking for a choreographer, and all the people who were suggested, because when you're making big shows like that, you're surrounded by the people who want you to do it with someone who's done it before, because it's safety, they know them, they have established relationships, and there are lots of people mentioned. And I didn't find any of them right for, I just felt in my bones they're not right. But someone said to me, you should go and see this group out in the east end called boy blue and i go who are they and they gave me this address down this side street in stratford i went into this house it was like a house and there were these guys young guys they were about 15 16 and they were doing a battle in the lobby of this house and i had the most extraordinary experience mikey of watching your guys work in that room And there were a bunch of people but 50 people there must have been or they felt like 50 maybe it was less who were there for a class and i remember ken being absolutely brutal with them tolerating nothing i mean these were amateurs these were not these are not professionals these were people off the street who fancied a bit of dance you know but they were the commitment to the process of the way the man was speaking to them and the way the music was speaking to them was total for an hour, and I'd never spent an hour like that. And I knew at the end of that hour, I thought, "This is I'll get these guys to do it. <laughs> because, <laughs> crazy. Because, because, and there's a very important part to this story. So the, 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 the section was the history of British music, pop music, and how important it was to us. One of the sections was actually to get a bit of the Sex Pistols, God Save the Queen, because that's a very, very important part, punk, of British music. And, but that single was banned by the BBC, and obviously because of the insult to the Queen. And the Queen was going to be in the stadium. So there was all this, you won't be able to use that. Your wife is just like, whoa, whoa, whoa. And I was saying, we've got to have God Save the Queen in it. And eventually I had to go and see John Lydon, Johnny Rotten, to get their permission because he thought it was a stitch-up. We were going we to use it and cut the lyrics. We were just going to use the tune and not hear the, the words that he'd written when he was 19, he wrote those. And so we played him the section it was going to appear in. The, the the section that you guys were doing by then you know building this music and choreographing the sequence to it and my boy Lollipop was part of it and he he went that's Millie Smalls you've got Millie Smalls in it this is Johnny Rotten said yeah and I said yeah of course he said she was the first black artist in the charts that there ever was like and he just went like that he said, I've just written a song about her called Lollipop Opera, which is on one of his albums. And, it, and he said, you can have the song. And <laughs> it, it was just, it was, it, we built we built it out of the proper material and we'd given it to the proper people. And I just left you guys to it then. And you'd bring me stuff, you'd cut all the stuff together and Ken would do it. And and then it was like you interacting with all the other departments. You give out your work and all the costume come in and you know, all the lighting and all that kind of, all these massive scale things, but the mobilization of people around a central idea that this, no matter who they were now, this was their music because they, they'd grown over this. The music scene in Britain, it is something that we've always been good at. Out punch our way. We absolutely.
2: For a small island, yeah. It made me so proud. Like it was so interesting because, you know, first off, the, the first thing you'd said to me was, Michael, it's got to sound like a party. And I don't know how we make the 50s, 60s music sound like a party. And I said, Danny, don't
3: worry. I <laughs> I know, but that was the thing about what you guys brought to it, is that you transformed it into being like an academic exercise, which is anybody can come up with that idea. To it feeling thrilling and vibrant and part of modern life. And, you know, it was the now. It's, it's awesome kind of to sit down and talk with you and,
2: and to really kind of talk about process, because I think about it more so, surrounding what I do as well, right? So when I think about what I've done musically, it's so very varied. Even though my application is hip hop, you know, the main kind of way I've treated all of my music tasks has totally varied in terms of style. And I feel the same with your films. So even though you're kind of the the fulcrum, the center point of all of your films, I feel like there's an identity that's different to each film that you have so i was so interested in how the process kind of works in terms of building you know the project up to a space where you come to record knowing that there's not like a specific style or maybe there is maybe there is a specific style of of danny's uh, danny's films but i've always felt like yeah they're so very varied so i really wanted to kind of
3: unearth some of that somewhat it's really interesting the uh, a lot of it comes from writers and i um I I had a very special training. You can't really train directors, you have to learn it. I mean, I guess musicians, I mean, you can't really train musicians. You can go to school and learn certain parts of it, but even that, I mean, you can learn how to read music and write music in music, but but in film, there's no particular skill you have to learn. But what I mean by training is I I went to this theatre, the Royal Court Theatre, where I got a job there. It's philosophy is that the writer is the ultimate Uh, authority it's the writer decides because it's the writer's voice that the theater is dedicated to and that's no matter who you are as a as a director or or as an actor or as you know one of the contributors to music or lighting it's a writer's theater and i carried i've realized how much i've carried that with me and that's helped me create variety in the work Um, definitely you know by having kind of respect for writers because obviously i I don't just work with the one writer i work with a number of different writers and we all we each have our own different ambitions and and we kind of lock together to work together i've i've managed to to work with a small bunch of writers who keep my work i hope keep my work varied but but i don't know what i don't know what the equivalent is for you is it is it your likes you know where you like something that isn't one definition like hip hop you reach for some is it? Is it because you because i know you use people's work in your work i think more than anything else, because obviously hip hop is built on
2: the idea of sampling and and sampling is something that is a tool you know i see it as a tool so to be able to kind of take something and interpolate it into something fresh and something novel even though it's from an older kind of record or some part you know that's definitely it but when i think about creating something more than anything else it starts out as a vision in my head a vision of a feeling or an emotion or a or a space and generally what then what then happens is is once you've created that you then think about who and so for argument's sake from an artist's point of view i would have a session with a particular artist and i would kind of dj in some kind of way like play them a playlist that i think that they will go for you know or you kind of make something for them in, whilst you're there. Um, you know, that's generally a, a cool way because more than anything else, the, the artist will feel a bit more connected to that. But then say something like with Ken, from a Boy Blue perspective, sometimes I come with the full vision and the idea of what the movement's doing and even some probably some dance motifs as well. And then I see that all in, in my head and might make some milestones throughout the sections of each piece and then say you can do everything else you want in, the, in between but these are the points i want us to hit and so i create that musical structure for it to kind of sit in that way
3: like when you say you see because because often when we talk together and we're working together you talk about an energy do you see the energy literally in visual pictures or, is, or do you is it just one of the senses that you're using to describe the experience Mm.
2: Yeah, more than anything else, it's it's that's why kind of talking to you is is, is dope in this way, because I see in moving pictures, literally, like it is me watching one of your films that will give me an inspiration or someone else's films that will give me an energy and inspiration. So what ends up happening, it becomes like a hodgepodge of reference points for me to kind of put together as, as one sequence. So it's kind of doing like visual editing in my head. Um But yeah, sometimes I do feel like a powerful energy to go, this is the the move that has to happen and this is how it has to feel. And then I'll manifest it musically as well. Um, Because like say Black, White, Grey, when the the intro of, of Black happens, I saw that vividly. I saw that exactly, exactly how it started in terms of how Dixon was lying on the floor, the undulations with his back. But where we went from there, you know, then I left that for the interpretation of Ken to kind of do. So sometimes it can be that potent and that powerful. And I mean, is it that way with you, or well, when you say with the writing, do you have to write it down before you start seeing it in your head to direct it?
3: No, I, I. Although I've written a couple of bits, I, I work. I've noticed, um, with the exception of Alex Garland, actually, who has himself turned into a director with a a keen visual sense, but generally I work with writers who don't really have that they they write certain images but they don't really write like that so i tend to bring that and i literally bring it because the way i work is i often bring photographs as, as you know because we've often shared them i bring in photographs not because it has to look like that in exactly the way you're talking about being inspired by something that makes you i, I want it to it's almost like you bringing in your playlist to inspire other artists you want to kind of like show people stuff and language is so difficult to use i find it's so inaccurate we don't listen to half the things we say to each other because you're listening to yourself too much but if you've got a picture it's a picture and it's blue and black and gray and and you know that's the picture you can share that and nobody can contest that we've all looked at the same image but it's the springboard, what it does to you. I would, I would, some some of them I would literally want to literally recreate, like you just said about the start of Black, White, Grey. But some of them, it's just to let other people riff on. Like, be, be as a springboard, oh, that's what's in his mind. One of the assumptions is that you can f- understand what's in other people's minds, which, of course, we know you can't. You can try to, and when you have a good relationship, which, like, you and Ken obviously do, you obviously make a lot of strides towards being able to see in, inside each other's minds, but we never do completely, do we?
2: Yeah. I mean, I, I think about when, when you said all of that just then, it just made me think about how do you create, I guess, the opportunity to know these pictures are going to work. Like, for me, it's, it's like probably a process of osmosis, so to speak, where you kind of are reading stuff, you're watching stuff, you're kind of experiencing stuff. And then it all kind of sits in your head and then settles into a space where it comes out in some way, shape or form. Sometimes that's that happens to me with music, especially from a sampling point of view. You know, d- d- is your process kind of the same in that regard?
3: Yeah, you kind of like it's osmosis, isn't it, to begin with. And then there's a process which is humiliation, which is you put it in front of people and, it and it clearly it tells you they don't need to say they're usually polite. Bit and say oh but you realize oh fuck i shouldn't have shown them that <laughs> that's terrible that a- so you because that process is very important part of the process isn't it when you display to people what you're working on or what you're thinking and you've got to that's one of the things i learned there's a particular stage of it in films which is the test screening which is the most neurotic pressure that you come under as a young filmmaker to think that you're going to put something up unfinished. The the public are gonna judge and then the studio are gonna crucify you by using people's opinions to make you remake the film and all those kind of stuff. But actually, when you get over that barrier, it's one of the most liberating and wonderful feelings when you can share it with people and it isn't finished. Cause you learn things about I could so improve that. I could make that so much better. They don't know where he is. I can tell, they just lost it they don't know where he's going to or they don't know who she is he's just mentioned her and they don't you know stuff yeah i mean i think what's been
2: powerful for me in in my current i guess creative world is giving the ownership to other departments so to speak so allowing so for argument's sake in in terms of dance can giving him the license to kind of run away and consider his own energy on it and then um the same with lighting and the same with costume you know, feeling like you've created enough, I guess, generative um, material for them to then have their own journey in that way. I mean, do you, you think of the notion of a director? Is it does it have to be your vision, or is it allowed to be kind of modified by you know other character, other you know the, some of the cast or some of
3: the film people, you know, the what people working on your production? you you read a lot about this stuff and it and, and the the you know about certain people being insistent on it being a certain way and things like that and people are certainly like that to a greater or lesser degree the truth is that all things are changed by participation and whether you whether you think you're a control freak or not this, they're going to change because certainly in i don't know what it's like in dance this is a really interesting thing to talk about but in terms of film or theatre, the actor changes everything absolutely, and he can't, he or she can't help it. They just change it because the chances that that is the person you were thinking about when you wrote it are zero. Obviously, you know, you had a one particular image in mind if you did, and it ain't that person. And then suddenly, it's Joe Bloggs comes along, you know, Benedict Cumberbatch comes along, or Johnny Lee Miller, or they're completely different. They and they bring all that baggage in themselves, not just in terms of how they look and sound, but also all their emotional baggage that they bring in, that they bring, and that you discover during rehearsals that they bring to the part. Like we did this show, Frankenstein, and Johnny had just had a baby, and subsequently Benedict, but after the show, has had two. I think, and Johnny's performance was very influenced by his son whereas benedict wasn't because he didn't know what it was to be a father yet so their performances were slightly different and they brought that that, you know that's a very obvious example of it which i noticed straight away in in rehearsals as so 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 people change everything but but in dance do they do that where they are more they feel more anonymized in in terms of individuality but then you do i remember you've talked about this you do that the pattern of your work is to create a pattern and then to liberate individuals within it. that you see you you got it spot on you know that we, there
2: would always be like one of our uh, uh probably a, a well-known piece now called eoe which obviously you did the the recording of for um the one we did at the barbican um that's a good example of having fixed points but then giving people this is your vibe that's your eights do what you have to do with them, you know? Um, and hip-hop always has to have that sense of spontaneity. I think for me, it, it's kind of, you know, I've been reading a, a, about, around jazz and, and, and looking at um, hip-hop and, it, you know, it's close, I guess, relationship. And seeing that improvisation is, is probably the biggest and most important element to all of those styles. And hip-hop dance is no, you know, no stranger to that same thing it has to be some point of not knowing what's about to happen that's going to kind of take it to the next space. And I've, I guess with my limited knowledge, it feels like, do you allow that to your, you know, I, I feel like sometimes because you, you see like the, the um, uh, outtakes, you see stuff like, um, you know, um, director's cuts where there's things that they would have wanted to keep in or moments and energies. I I think my mind, goes back to what happened in Django, where Leonardo got so into the scene, He's when he smashed his hand on the table, he actually smashed his hand. Um, is it about you creating the atmosphere, giving the energy, and then letting a the moment happen, or is it, you know, once they
3: act, they're doing exactly what they've done from rehearsals? I I mean, you, you mentioned Leonardo, he, I've worked with him, he's an amazing actor, and he has grown as an actor, He's his improvisation, his contribution to films is enormous now, and I and I was very lucky to do. I did a and A with um, Quentin Tarantino when he was promoting uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, and he was saying in the Q and A that actually that amazing scene where Leo's character comes in into the caravan, full of neurotic self doubt, completely improvised by. It wasn't even in the script, I believe. Completely improvised by Leo. And that's a good example of an actor and a director, both of whom are A-listers, respecting each other and building material through that respect for each other's skills. So he covered it in just a couple of cameras so that he could jump in and out of it, which is, but you're not, you're not directing an actor in that space. The actor is saying, let me do this. Let me just let me just run with this. And you've got to think all you've got to do is just figure out a way that will give you editorially the way to exhibit it best. And sometimes that's like in one take uh, where, you, where there's no flexibility. You're just going to you're just going to see a wanna for a particular effect you want to create. But other times it's just to give yourself enough in, in in camera where you think, yeah, I'll have to reduce that a bit. And just uh, and you give yourself enough control to be able to get in and out of it elegantly really but that's that's a very good example of them improvising though i as a whole i i'm very script based going back to what we said at the beginning about my my training in a writer's theater i tend to be very loyal to a script and we i'm happy to improvise but i cover the script first i have that kind of like old fashioned thing about get the scene we've got the scene as it was written and now we can play um and it's interesting, comedians especially, when you work with them on film, they want that freedom. They'll do the script that's written, and then they want to improvise ten different lines to give at the end more and more outrageous as they go on. You know, because they know in doing comedy that comedy is something that you know you film something, and it's two years before it comes out, and it might feel flat and stale by then, and you might want to pep it up. So that kind of improvising is always a good thing. But I'm very script. I'm very script based.
0: Yeah. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices
2: casting to a degree yeah we know that that's a process and a moment in in the idea of creating a film so just for the sake of the conversation and for me more than anything else what is the process like say okay let's pick 28 days later really really unique and quite a i think interesting take at the zombie you know genre so to speak yeah and obviously London, you know, we hadn't seen London in that way. And like the big scenes like that you had, especially the ones where the whole of the, the country had shut down. What is the process from, I guess, from writing to getting into? you know, what is the, the names of each process for you specifically? Do they have names? Is they, or is it
3: different every time? That's a very good example of a combative chemistry. Alex had written the book that the beach is based on. But he wasn't involved in the making of the film, although he came out to Thailand where he had spent many years touring. And, and we began to develop a friendship. And then he, he gave us this little script. And then we began to talk about it. And the first thing that came out, and it led to what was a very constructive but combative relationship, was that he was a zombie addict. He absolutely adored zombie movies. George Romero was... Um, you know the archangel Gabriel. I mean, he was just like he was just like, um, and I couldn't bear them. I just I always thought they were ridiculous. Now I, I'd said that in a provocative and um facetious way to get, to get a reaction, but it, but it got a good reaction out of the two of us because we began because I thought I I did that thing. It's an obvious thing, which is they're not scary. You just have to trot away from them. Really, you don't even have to break into a run to get away from them. They're so slow and all that kind of stuff, which is not appreciating the point. I've grown to appreciate them much more, actually, since May Anyway, but it meant that we came up with, we wanted to come up with a different way of doing the, the zombies, although we didn't call them that, we called them the infected. And we had this idea that the, that the infection was based on something that was very prevalent then, and comes and goes, and it was social rage. It was road rage which was there were a couple examples of it, of people pulling up in motor cars, running somebody off the road because they, they feel they've been cut up. And actually, there was one case of a guy stabbing this famous criminal, stabbed this student, ran him off the road and stabbed him and killed him. And they'd been trying to imprison this guy. He was called Kenneth Noy, I think. And they'd been trying to put him in jail for years because he was he was a gold bullion robber. He, he lost all his freedom because a. Guy in a mini had cut him up in a Range Rover. And I remember thinking that's, if you can bottle that moment, that's frightening because there's no reason. It's just insane, you know, and it's based on the fact that we, there's another human being there, and you hate them. The big breakthrough was that Gail Stevens, the casting director, said you should go to this agency in Leytonstone. It was for retired athletes and gymnasts. So those people who we saw in the Olympic opening ceremony, the, the ones we did, Mikey, they'll all have retired now. They, they're over, their careers are over, When some of them when they're in the mid-twenties. So what these people do is they set up an agency where you can hire retired athletes who are still super fit. And I, this is a whole new world to me, I thought. But of course it's smart, because you have a huge pool of talent, which because of age is excluded from the prizes anymore. And yet there's all this ability. So what I did is I went to the agency and they gave us a space in their office. And I got a bunch of them, these athletes, to attack me as violently as possible. But in order to protect myself, and also because I knew they'd be attacking Killian Murphy or Naomi Harris, um, I said, you can't hurt me, but you've got to do everything but that last moment of impact. And of course, they have incredible discipline. Because they're athletes and gymnasts, and, they, and it, but it was one of the most frightening things. Because I don't know about you, but athletes' bodies are in a, are on a different planet to regular people. I mean, it's like dancers, I guess. I'm a regular person as well. <laughs> yeah, I know, absolutely. So we, we we made the zombies run very fast, and also there was no way you could escape them. There's no way you could fight them. They became a true threat, really incomprehensible. You like it, almost. We wanted them to be a terrifying threat for a modern audience. So that's what we tried to create. And then you put Killian and Naomi in the middle of it, and you say survive. There you go. You've got to survive.
2: That sounds so... Because I think, wasn't that truly a genre-bending film? Because essentially, every zombie film from that point on, everyone ran even down to, like, The Walking Dead.
3: We should have made a television series out of our... If we'd known what we know now, we should have made a television series Because,
2: out of it. yeah, it was literally... Because when I think about it, it was the first time I'd seen zombie films done in that way. I'm a weirdo. I watch one film every night, the same film over and over and over. It just becomes a pattern of being able to sleep. And what, what, what are you watching now? Currently, I'm watching Total Recall, the latest version. I want to watch something that doesn't provoke my brain and allows it to kind of relax and go to sleep because sometimes just my mind could
3: just be buzzing with so many different thoughts, feelings and ideas. And when you look at them, do you get, what do you get off them? Apart from pleasure of movie, of storytelling. Yeah. Obviously something we all get from movies of all sorts and persuasions. But do you get music ideas from them or movement ideas from them? Sadly, my hobby has now
2: turned into, because that's what films were. It was truly a hobby. It was always Films were the thing that I used to relax. But now doing stuff for theatre, now doing stuff for film, you know, and even doing the latest Netflix, um, uh, Top Boy, you know, that has just become the process. Now I listen to the show.
3: And so now I'm working all the time. That's the problem, isn't it? I have a good thing where I kind of, if it's good, I'm not working. If it's good, I'm able to... Because I I, I cry in front of films and and laugh and, 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 you know, I I, I lose myself, I literally lose, I suspend disbelief and properly enter into it. If it's not great, then I'm working all the time, criticising it, thinking, you know, and hunting for how you do it better and all effectively samples like you. you
2: Yeah, that, that's me from the jump. I have to always, if I want to enjoy something, I have to watch it twice. Like even watch, watching Barbershop Chronicles, one of my friends in his show. And even though it was, I wanted to celebrate him, it was a massive thing that he had done. It was awesome. It was at the National. I just sat there thinking, oh, how did they do that? Oh, that was really nice. I like that, you know? And then I had to come back and watch it again just to be able to absorb the full experience.
3: I saw that. That was a fantastic show.
2: I always find myself in that space now, sadly. Um, And yeah, I will be watching like, funny enough, you know, obviously um, not to kind of give away um, a few things. um, You know, I watched something recently that's related to something we're doing. The, The composer of that, I realized his chord sequences and stuff are really similar to mine. So that really was nice. I'm now I'm now researching him a little bit more. And yeah, anytime I watch any kind of show now, I'm always listening to what the music's
3: doing that's true isn't it in all certainly anyone i've ever met mikey who's any good they're mad at researching what what you're talking about is research effectively always yeah. you hear this word research and it sounds kind of like special and but it's not it's in in our cases it's watching really good stuff and it's looking at how it's done and you and you gradually begin to realize I could do that and that and and, and actually now when I read a scene I know how to how it should feel I know and and how to make that feeling appear after all the technicalities it has to go through to get there like who do you of composers that you listen to who do you who do you like who are the who are the great composers do you think it's crazy because
2: I don't I've never ever looked at it in that way in terms of film Because I've never had anyone that does do the sound I do in that realm. Only recently, people like RZA has been used a little bit, you know, and I'm talking about hip-hop heads that kind of have started to move to that. But more than anything else, I'm always looking to people who are creating tapestries in their music in general. So Kanye West, definitely the older Kanye West, you know, he's someone that I'm listening to. So it would always be artists and musicians and producers like a Jay Dilla or It's just more contemporary music from a, from a hip-hop standpoint. But it's only recently that I'm starting to look at composers directly. You know, because obviously Hans Zimmer, he's everywhere. But Pharrell did what he did with Hans Zimmer for Minions. So like, say, that was an interesting pairing. We're seeing that world kind of be unearthed now where people from the hip hop world or people from the, the black music world are finding themselves in that spaces. And it's really new to me, if anything. So that's why the research even becomes a little bit more fun because now all the composers who probably would be well-known and, and have been the backdrops to so many different films that I've, I've watched are now all fresh and new to me. So I, I, would, I would say I'm at the beginning of
3: my journey. No, I think the the point you make is very, is right. It's extraordinary how slow Hollywood Um, and and, and, and pretty much all the film industry has been to absorb hip-hop other than as needle drops, what we call needle drops, which is obviously when you insert, because I've done this a lot, I I insert into films a pop song, and it's a recognisable one. You just go, oh, it's David Bowie. He's not part of this world, is he? But the song fits or whatever it is that you drop in there. But there's a much bigger part of the process that presumably will arrive and at accelerated pace now. Which is hip hop composers scoring films, emotionally scoring films, and that's when I look at your work for Boy Blue, you can see that because you use many, many different textures. Though obviously your palette has very uh, particular definition, but it can go anywhere as well.
2: And, and hip hop is that as a style and as an element. It wants to taste. It wants to enjoy. It wants to be a part of all. It requires you essentially. It requires your energy. So that's why. Brazilian elements from, like, say, a capoeira point of view or, you know, from a dance style's point of view, everything has entered into hip-hop in some way, shape or form. Like, I always show people the, the juxtaposition the juxtaposition between what is crump and ballet. And interestingly enough, the guys who made... There was a guy called Miho and another guy called Tight Eyes, and they made crump. Tight Eyes specifically studied ballet. So he, you see in, in the early realms of um, crump specifically he used to do the positions, first, second and third were stomps that he would use. So if you go back and look at the old version, you can see how he kind of had that experience with ballet and then it entered into, um, you know, the work, well, his style, so to speak. And that's, yeah, that's hip hop. It it always wants that. And I think for me, it always comes from a space of studying um, orchestral music and being a because I, I was a Grade 8 um, singer, and I did that for um, GCSE. Well, I did it for A-Level, but um, GCSE, A-Level, I'd studied you know, Stravinsky and you know, Bach and all of the Mozart, all the classics, do you know what I mean? But then at the same time, I was really into harmony. So that kind of seeped in, in a major way, into what my work is as a hip-hop practitioner now, I would say.
1: At The Barbican, we're committed to identifying new talent nurturing emerging artists and supporting innovative work. If you're able, please show your support by making a donation and help us to inspire more people to discover and love the arts. Text barbican5 to 70085 to donate five pounds plus one standard rate message or visit barbican.org.uk forward slash donate.
3: Just listening to you talk, I was thinking,
1: you know, we think how far
3: behind we are in terms of film composers. We were just talking about it. Out of date, really. It will update soon, but it's out of date. And most art forms are out of date. The one that isn't out of date is music. It's what John Lennon said. The thing about music is that you can, and especially these days, of course, is that you can write it in the morning and you can put it and it can be out on the streets in the afternoon. And it's got more progress in it than any other art form i think and i for i particularly benefited for that because i copied the energy of mtv when it arrived into my films and at the time it was regarded as being oh that's a bit cheap that's not classic and i was going i'm sorry this is fucking awesome <laughs> just and so it and that came from mtv i mean it was completely import from mtv which is that you 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 made films like pop videos were beginning to appear, you know, as they were on MTV. So it was a huge influence like that.
2: You made me think about train spotting in a totally different way. I mean, for you, was that like a um, a defining moment for your career? And I think the idea of of what you did really does feel like you know was like a punk record. You know, it, that's what it felt like. Now, when you said everything you said, I'm like. Yeah, it was like a, a music video. I, I didn't realise the way it moved, the fast pace, the scenes. Do you know, was that like a big moment for you? And also at the same time, was it a defining moment in terms of the skill set? And did it live in that um, that MTV world that you described?
3: Yeah, I mean, it was, it was we'd, we'd made this first film, Shallow Grave, which was a kind of update of a, of a classic thriller. You know, with a with a kind of slightly more modern sensibility, and Ewan was in that as well. But he had really thick, gorgeous hair, and at the time he was he was known on television. He it appeared in a in a period thing where that long hair was a great thing. We sent him the book, and he said, "I want to play Renton," and we just our jaws dropped, and we went, "Well, you're not really Renton, because Ren, in the book Renton's a ginger-haired skinhead, really." And Ewan went away, and this is. He went away and six weeks later, he came back and he shaved his hair off completely to the horror of his agent. He'd given up alcohol and dairy products and he'd just gone down and he was skin and bones. He was barely recognizable. Wow. And it's that bravery of an artist going, that's mine. But it doesn't matter what you think as a director, as a writer, as a, it doesn't matter what any of you think, this is mine. And you get that sometimes with actors where they just go, that's mine. I get that. I understand that. And that's mine. And you kind of don't get in the way of that. You let that, that's that wonderful f- adrenaline flush of creativity coming from someone else. Watching that film as a young man, I would not seen nothing like that.
2: Literally, I'd never seen anything like that. And also, it was talking about a culture which made no sense to me, per se. I was kind of liking it to when I first heard Eminem's first album. And he was talking all, of, you know, using, I guess, very Western names, you know, in record, usually I'm listening to hip hop and it's you know more ebonic sounding names, and all of a sudden he kind of opened me to this world that I hadn't considered before, which was a white, uh, you know, hip hop mentality, but at the same time steeped in a culture that was totally unique to mine, and that felt that's what transporting did in a way that I'd never expected, you know, and I didn't know I was going to like it if I'm honest.
3: It, it, I mean, it comes out of a, just to go back to writers where I kind of started. It comes out of an extraordinary book. I always say to people the book. Irving's never written anything quite like it. Irving Welsh who wrote the book. And it's way better than the film, the book, if you can read it. It's written in the vernacular. So it's quite, there's a barrier to begin with, which is trying to decipher what they're saying. You, your brain kind of un, unlocks it after about 10 pages. It's sort of like you, you think you're going to need a lexicon all the time to look up words and stuff like that. But you don't. Your brain unscrambles it weirdly after about 10 pages and it's a complete masterpiece But it's written out of pain witnessing witnessing extraordinary suffering and dependency and danger and yet it's also written with that humour we were talking about pitch black sense of humour in the worst possible circumstances the humour is at its fiercest.
2: There seems to be regular collaborators in your work thus far would you agree
3: or because we were very lucky, and our second film was was a big hit, like Transport, made a big impact. You you kind of want to, your instinct then is to do something different because you don't just want to repeat stuff. So, but having said that, I've also really cherished trying to build relationships with people who can who know you better than you know yourself in a way. So they kind of like that's the best place to be in. Because you you kind of like you you build stuff together then and it's not about people's reputations or previous work or anything like that you're just building something new afresh really so and 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 it's a lovely way to do it with people that you've been around the course with really so yeah I mean I really I really enjoy that and i I've tried to do that I've always enjoyed the idea of regular
2: collaborators because yeah you're, you're growing together, you're kind of building together
3: yeah. yeah. Absolutely so, yeah. and, and and the danger with if you've had a success or some and you and someone new comes in, the the danger is their relationship is with is with the success rather than with you. you know they they're, 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 they're reacting to the image of the success that you've had previously rather than reacting to you and what you're talking about together. For us in the music world, making that first album is easy because
2: you're using every year of your life up until that moment then when you make the second one, it's your life past that moment. So it's like the next three years of your life or the next two years of your life, you know, that you're making the album. That's always tough because it changes the tone. It changes how people perceive what you're doing. And it puts a little bit more pressure, I would say, on um, on, on you as an artist or as a... Definitely when I've... Because I've always come from it from a musical angle, but watching my friend, my friends who are artists kind of delve back into themselves. Speak. Um, I wanted to ask... One more film, because I think it's so. For me, it felt like a turn in your career, and it's crazy that I'm saying that to you. <laughs> um, Slumdog Millionaire, you know. From a writing perspective, I I really do see what you was talking about in terms of the story. I never had a moment where I was figuring out what was going on and how it was going to turn out and why the um, how to be a millionaire mattered. Yeah, you know. And then right at the end. All of a sudden, there was a big dance dance piece. Do you know what I mean? A massive dance break, like and and it was it was it was kind of blending. I don't know how in terms of the style of because the end felt like a Bollywood film. So I got that. I, I kind of understand that connection. But then also at the same time, the, the want and the desire. Because as I said the, at the beginning, your work has been so varied—from doing jobs to doing a slum dog to Train Spotting to 127 hours. You know, all of that stuff makes it so so interesting to think what kind of brought you into doing Slumdog Millionaire and 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 how did that process kind of come around? So so
3: so I got a script. I didn't know Simon Balfoy, who I've got to know very well, so, and and we're working on something together at the moment. And um, uh, but I knew of him. He'd written Full Monty, which is a film, which was a, a creeper film. It wasn't an instant success when it first came out. It slowly built through audience reactions through the audience built it into a monster hit it was in terms of an indie film it's a monster hit anyway this script arrived from my agent like on you know and it was it was called slumdog millionaire but i didn't really read that i they they, they said it's based on who wants to be a millionaire and i remember thinking I don't want to make a film about who wants to be a millionaire that was like chris tarrans and but then i saw it was written by simon Bolfoy, whose name i recognized and i thought well out of respect to simon i'll i should read some of this so that at least i can reply to him courteously and also giving the impression that i've read the whole thing after 10 pages i just knew i just thought i'll we should make this because it's just and so going to India was discovering this extraordinary world. And as soon as you get there in Mumbai, but my dad was there in the war and he used to tell me what an amazing place and people it, there were, you know, he loved India and loved Indian people, which was very, where I grew up in Manchester, it was very unusual. There was a lot of racism against Indians and Pakistanis then, but he was virulently because of his experience in Mumbai and his his love of the people and what they made of their lives. And it's so little that really left a mark on me. And, and I found it completely. I found his arguments in retrospect, like 50 years later, I found them completely persuasive. I was like, this is awesome. I mean, a lot of people react against it and can't take it because it is an overwhelming sensory experience. But for a filmmaker, if you get a great script, like you get from Simon Balfour and you get Mumbai, it's like you've got to that's you've just got to go with it and see if you can exercise any kind of control over it because it's a beast. And you know, the, the city is a beast that offers you wonders and dangers and and you just gotta roll with it, you know. So I learned so much on that film doing that stuff. It was it was another one of those kind of beach moments.
2: Cause I you always manage to what I see now is always managed to kind of go, okay. It's a Danny Boyle film, so it's gonna be good then. So you rock up and then you're like, I don't know how he took me on this journey, but I like it. It's like a theater production. That's the best way to kind of describe it because you only have one space in a theater production. And when I think about 127, when I think of Slumdog, there are moments that we're just in one area. And then from that moment, we get take or transported to somewhere else and that would be a scene change. But we always draw back to that original space to kind of, Perpetuate the story and build the tension. Is that something you're drawn to, or
3: is that something you kind of create? I think it is. I think there's a theatricality that you that w- when I when I was working in the theatre and I wanted to get into films because when I was a kid I never went to the theatre. We just didn't go to the theatre. I, I only the first time I w- ever went in a theatre was when I was 16 and I got a job at the Bolton Octagon as an usher. You know, just to make some money. You know, after school. And um, w- whereas film, I obviously like anybody, I was mad about films. Um, so I always wanted to make films, but they always used to say in theatre that you'd never, you can never go into films because you always think too theatrically. You think in terms of a of a of a proceeding art. But actually, um one of the things that we've been quite good at as a country is developing theatre directors into film directors, weirdly. Because actually, I think the biggest difference is actually television is the biggest difference. There is a connection between theatre and film, which is that if you want to be a filmmaker, you have to have a certain, to have a kind of flair. There's a theatricality almost in a way about announcing itself as a vision. It's big and bold and demanding. You know, in the way that theatre can be wonderful because it's saying, you are looking, it's just one space, everybody, but this is the whole world right there. Whereas (laughs) television is different, television is that. That's what it works best on, actors and faces, intercut faces. And and that's what it's built on, really. And that's very reductive of television. It's an amazing art form. But but um, but then it was it felt like there was more of a connection, weirdly, between theatre and, and and film. And and the big thing about film is you have to learn some of the technicalities. But they somebody I think Orson Welles said, everything technical that you need to know as a film director you can learn in an afternoon. The rest is up to you. What you want to do with it and what you know. Have you got anything to say? Have you got have you got the right people around you to help you say it? That was, those are all the skills of it, really, rather than technical skills as such.
2: Yeah, man. I mean, generally, all the films that I've watched where there are kind of one situated space, you know, everything that has that kind of energy has always been written flawlessly because, you know, you've kind of created, and I do this musically sometimes, is you kind of create boundaries to kind of sit in, so you have to ring dry every idea, you know and that's what theatre does for me I think, as a whole
3: i think you're right i think boundaries are really important The restrictions you would think ultimate freedom it is is helpful i i'm not sure it is sometimes having the restriction of a smaller budget or you know certain parameters you have to be within makes you really inventive within those parameters rather than just saying you can have anything you want just grab one <laughs> And you, you, you kind of can't, 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 can't make your mind up then. Whereas if your mind is slightly made up for you, then you push at those boundaries and kind of like flex. And yeah.
1: That was Michael, Mikey J. Asante and Danny Boyle, our first guests on this new series inspired on the Barbican podcast, Nothing Concrete. Next week, curator, writer, actor, director and expert in disability health and social care policy, Jamie Hale, talks to Australian comedian, Hannah Gadsby, who rose to international fame with her Netflix shows, Nanette and Douglas. But until then, subscribe to Nothing Concrete on Acast, Spotify or wherever you find your podcasts. And if you enjoyed this episode, please consider supporting The Barbican, by texting Barbican followed by the amount you'd like to donate. For example, Barbican five to seven double O eight five. Thanks for joining us and goodbye for now.
0: Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well,